0: and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com.
1: Savings based on cost of Consumer cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024.
2: Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Frank Gable has found himself a key figure in that. the Michael Frankie you know, murder investigation. He says sad. he didn't do it. He I'm says he's being set up.
4: I don't know. I've been so scared... More than a year after Michael Frankie's death, the state was now fully focused on Frank Gable as the sole suspect in his murder.
3: Something else scares Gable too. He says some of the members of his old drug ring have shown up in the Coos County Jail. He's not sure why, but he thinks that has something to do with Frankie's murder as well. So
5: I think I might have walked into something that I'm unaware aware of last year. And I think it's involved behind drugs.
4: Gable, who maintained his innocence, was indicted and arrested for Frankie's murder in April of 1990. But he was about to receive another blow. The defense attorney assigned to his case, Bob Abel.
6: There were some good lawyers in in, uh, Salem, but to be as blunt as possible, Abel was not one of them.
7: If I was going to pick an attorney to handle that case, I would have picked several other people first. And I think anybody would have.
4: Bob Abel's assignment as Frank Abel's defense attorney was just the first in a series of missteps that would place Gable's life in jeopardy. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Oregon. attorney Bob Abel seemed to know he was going to get the Frankie murder case before Frank Gable was even charged, according to Tom McCallum, the lead investigator for Gable's defense team.
7: He told me several months before that he was going to get the Michael Frankie case. And at the time, I thought it was a pretty bold statement because I actually thought he was an attorney that probably wouldn't even be on the list. And when he called and told me that he had it, uh, I was surprised.
4: McCallum says Abel's working conditions weren't exactly ideal for handling what was the highest-profile murder case in the state.
7: I knew that Bob didn't have an office because I did a big murder case for him uh, about a year before, and he worked out of the office of his co-counsel. We met at the Tiki Lounge a lot of times and occasionally in the Marion County Courthouse in the law library. So I knew he didn't have an office, and I knew he'd been recently divorced because I helped him with his divorce, and he was having some problems with that. So he was sort of out of touch with, I thought, with the legal community.
4: So in addition to not having an office, then I would assume he didn't have a fax machine or a professional phone or a secretary at the time?
7: No, he didn't. In fact, uh, he actually moved into a spare office we had in a building in Salem.
4: While he didn't have an office of his own, what Abel did have was a reputation. Here's Kevin.
8: My understanding from a couple of the attorneys that are on the list for capital cases said that they should have been on it. And they jumped the scheduling or the pecking order got rearranged to get Bob Abel in that position. It wasn't because he was the best that they had to offer in terms of defense attorneys. He'd only had one capital murder case on his record at that time, and he lost that in dramatic fashion. I think any
6: three-year-old kid could figure out why Bob Abel was picked.
4: Phil goes into more specifics.
6: Well, he was a heavy drinker, and everyone in uh, the legal business in Salem would have known that. In fact, Abel has acknowledged it uh, in post-conviction testimony. He denied that he was drinking heavily during the trial, but uh, he did admit that not too long after the trial was over, he went into rehab.
4: So the chances are he didn't develop that issue after Gable's trial?
6: Well, no. In fact, everyone around him knew that he was drinking. Gable complained about it. The investigators knew about it. Just a few years ago, I talked to Abel's girlfriend, who was with him during the time of the trial, and she said each night he was drinking about a quart of vodka. Uh, She said vodka with squirt mixer, if you can imagine that.
4: Kevin also voiced his concerns to the prosecution at the time.
8: If I'm getting into an airplane, I don't want the goddamn pilot drunk. If I'm Frank Gable, I don't want my lawyer drunk.
4: In addition to his reputation, Bob Abel also had an apparent connection to the judge presiding over the case, Gregory West. Here's lead investigator for the defense, Tom McCallum again.
7: I did know from things that I'd heard that he had at one point in time shared an office with Judge West, who was the judge on the case, but I never ever
6: confirmed that.
4: But Phil Stanford did.
6: Oh, yeah. Uh, I I checked the city directory for that time uh, immediately before the trial, and Abel and Judge West, who was then a lawyer, had had offices just down the hallway from each other, joining offices on the same hallway in the same building.
4: Regardless of how Abel landed the case, just weeks before the trial, the investigators for the defense were so concerned by his lack of preparedness that they wrote and signed a letter imploring Judge West to postpone the trial.
7: So Grace Castle, who was the only investigator that I didn't hire, Bob insisted I hire her. And uh, she suggested we should prepare a letter and send it to the judge. So we all agreed, and she prepared this letter saying that we thought we needed a continuance because we didn't think that they were prepared. And we all signed the letter, including Bob's assistant.
4: How many people signed that letter?
7: All of us. We had, uh, I think, nine investigators, all the investigators were there. And then the next day, I hand-delivered it to Bob. He wanted to initially fire everybody, and ultimately, over my objections, he called in Grace, who happened to be in our office at the time, and fired her. I think he had an obligation because we'd given it to him, and uh, I know he delivered the letter to Judge West and then i never nothing ever came of it. the trial never got postponed nobody ever said anything i've heard different scenarios that it, uh, judge west destroyed it and i've heard other ones that it was still included in the record somewhere
1: tired of spills and stains on your sofa wash away your worries with anabay
5: Go to lifelock.com slash iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at lifelock.com slash iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here.
4: So, with his defense woefully unprepared and without an apparent game plan, Gable's trial began on May 1st, 1991. And as the prosecution rested, Tom McCallum found himself coordinating the initial witnesses for the defense and one of his first, Phil Stanford, to share the story about Mark Gessner, the inmate he'd interviewed who claimed he'd been approached to fabricate testimony against Gable in exchange for leniency.
6: I wrote a column about that and for all the good it did because the state went ahead and called him as a prosecution witness when it came time for trial. I was sitting at my desk at the Oregonian, got a call from Tom McCallum, and uh, he said, (laughs) hey, Phil, can you come down and testify tomorrow? Uh, We're starting our case, and and we're not ready to go. Did he explain that? He said, Abel's been out drinking. We haven't put together a case. And in fact, as uh, I learned later, he and another investigator had been putting together the opening presentation for the defense on this thing. It it was incredible. So I went down there and I testified. I don't think I did a particularly good job, but it it was completely out of order. Uh, There was was no context. I talked about the interview I'd had with Gessner, and I talked about the column I'd written in which he said he was going to make up his testimony, and that was that.
4: And who did he say was coercing his testimony?
6: Oh, uh, as he told me down when he was in jail, uh, the state police were trying to get him to say that Gable had confessed to him. And he said, he didn't, man. But, you know, everybody's got to look out for himself. And uh, that's what I said, uh, for all the good it did, right?
4: But even with the defense's rocky start, initially Phil and the other journalists covering the case thought it would be an uphill battle for the prosecution with their ragtag assortment of witnesses. Here's local television reporter Eric Mason.
10: I think all of us realized there was nothing, really, that connected Frank Gable to this crime. And that the people who had told the story that and had become informants and snitches against Frank Gable, they were all professional liars. They were all people who'd made serious, big deals before in their lives with prosecutors and understood the system and the way it worked.
4: Steve Jackson believes the sketchy witnesses and complete lack of physical evidence linking Gable to the murder should have worked in Gable's favor had he been properly defended.
11: I just didn't feel that the uh, the defense attorneys were on the same level as the prosecutors, but as witnesses. Um, I think for either side, they, they, they would have just been, you know, problematic because you put them up there and you can go at them and say, you know, what crimes have you been convicted of in the past? And have you ever lied on the stand? And have you changed your story back and forth, your uh, believability and, uh, you know, your integrity?
4: Phil
6: agrees. The state had no physical evidence. Their whole case, their whole case rested on these so-called material witnesses whose testimony they had it's now clear manufactured using lie detector tests uh, primarily until the uh, these jailbirds and ex-cons and teenage runaways got their stories straight they figured out what the cops wanted them to say and and eventually several of them did enough to to put on the stand but that's what their case was,
4: and it seems that their witnesses all had something to lose by not testifying and something to gain.
6: Oh yeah, in in, in some cases, as with Gessner, uh, they were th- uh, threatening to charge him with uh, other more serious crimes, and and made a deal uh, for that. And with others, uh, they threatened to uh, tie them into uh, into the murder. So yeah, they made up stories and and, uh, the state put them on. And Abel was not capable of demonstrating how inconsistent and ultimately uh, manufactured these stories were.
4: It became clear that the state was leveraging and shaping testimony and using polygraphs, lie detector tests, to do it.
6: Several of the, the witnesses all of them when they started out would say yeah uh gable's a drug dealer i don't like him uh nothing about the murder but uh, then they would say you uh we know you're lying they give him another one and they were given multiple tests jody was even given 23 lie detector tests which is unheard of and um over time they would figure out what the cops would accept as the truth because they were also being threatened with being charged with other crimes or even being drawn into the Frankie murder.
4: But even the state's most reputable witness, Hunsacker, the maintenance man at the Dome building, seemed to present shaped testimony during the trial. The original statement he made regarding the two men he claimed to see the night Michael Frankie was murdered seemed altered to fit the state's narrative. Here's Kevin Frankie.
8: Even Hunsaker, his story changed from what he told me before the trial. He went from his discussion with me, from his mouth to my ears, that the guy that turned around and went back to the dome building was walking like he didn't have any place to go. He wasn't in a hurry. He wasn't crouched. He wasn't holding his chest. He wasn't stumbling. It was just walking like he didn't have no place to go. His exact words. And his testimony at trial was that he walked briskly back up to the North Portico entrance. Those two big changes.
4: And Hunsacker's testimony also contradicted the story that the state was hinging their case on. Testimony from their star witness, drug dealing career criminal Shorty Hardin. Remember that name? That's the same Shorty Hardin who ran with Tim Natividad, the guy with the van, Harry Rothschild mentioned multiple times.
6: Hunsaker, the janitor, said he walked out of the building and was looking at these two figures. One turned around and uh, ran away uh, to the west and the other uh, walked back to the dome building. But he would have been looking straight at the spot where Shorty said he had parked his car. He didn't see a car. Shorty said he started up the car after he saw Michael Frankie get stabbed. Hunsaker would have seen and heard that, seen the car racing away. And there were other contradictions as well, which Abel did not have the wherewithal to point out.
4: And it seems to me that Hunsaker, or Hunsaker was the only one on the stand who didn't have anything to gain or lose.
6: Of these uh, crime scene witnesses, yes, that's for sure.
4: But yet his testimony changed slightly from the statements he had made immediately after the murder.
6: Well, uh, Eric Mason and I went down and talked to him uh, shortly after the murder. And, and uh, he said that the man who walked back to the building walked back in sort of a leisurely manner. Uh, leisurely is the word I put in my notes at the time. And uh, by the time the the state had him on the stand, he said he was walking back briskly. Things like that, yeah.
4: Shorty Hardin took the stand and told the same story he told to the grand jury. Shorty claimed when he picked Jody up, he saw Frank Gable in the car across from him. Apparently, Michael Frankie then approached. There were blaring contradiction to Hunsacker's testimony, who claimed to only see two men, never mentioned another vehicle pulling up, seeing a woman, or hearing that loud exchange. But the defense never challenged the discrepancies. Here's Kevin.
8: Well, Shorty was obviously making up a story that Bob Abel didn't jump on he never asked Hunsaker did you hear or see Shorty Harden's car coming into the parking lot at this time did you hear or see Shorty Harden pull up and the car door open and Jody get out did you hear or see Frank Gable wrestling in the car with Mike Frankie? did you hear Mike Frankie yell out as Shorty testified hey what are you doing in my car never asking those questions but I asked him those questions and he said, no, there were no other cars. There were no other headlights. There were no engines running. It was deathly quiet. That was astounding. And that's when I knew
6: Frank was fucked.
1: Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639.
3: Let's go places.
4: Another blow came when Jody Swearingen, the troubled teenage runaway and drug user, took the stand. Jody had formerly been a grand jury witness for the prosecution but had now recanted her testimony and was no longer on board. She was now testifying for the defense and adamant she'd never seen Gable at the Dome building or witnessed him kill Michael Frankie. Her cross-examination by prosecutor Sarah Moore provided one of the most dramatic moments of the trial as Moore reminded her of her previous testimony. Here's Phil.
6: If if the trial had a turning point, it was Jody's testimony. She was called by the defense. And Sarah Moore, the, the lead prosecutor, had to uh, cross-examine her. What Sarah did was to read back to Jody her testimony before the grand jury, which, as Sarah knew, had been manufactured using all these 23 lie detector tests. And so she would read, and did you say, you drove there in Frank Gable's car over to the dome building? And Jody would say, but that's a lie. And then she'd say that you were a lookout, basically standing in front of the tree that immediately in front of the North Portico porch area. And and Jody would say, but that's a lie. And that you saw Frank Gable get into a struggle with a big, tall man near the car that night. And Jody, that's a lie.
4: Ultimately, the spectacle was damning for the defense.
6: It was, um, at best, completely confusing to the jury, but it made Jody... uh, it must have seemed to them that she was really confirming this story that she
4: had for some time recanted. So the prosecution's approach was, if you're lying then, you're lying now.
6: Yes, and, and but beyond that, they got her false confession in uh, and made it seem
4: like the truth. Here's Kevin Frankie.
8: My take on Jody is that she was still extremely afraid of being held, even though they had given her immunity. Uh, she was afraid that anything could happen, that she could say the wrong thing, and the immunity agreement would go down the toilet, and she'd end up spending the rest of her life or a good 20 or 30 years in prison.
4: Jody Swearingen had previously been granted immunity by the state for her grand jury testimony. That immunity seems to have been leveraged for a reason. Even as Kevin Frankie watched the train wreck of Jody's cross-examination unfold, he was waiting for the defense to retaliate with a bombshell he'd uncovered months before the trial even started, involving Jody Swearingen and a lawyer she had turned to, desperate for help.
8: Joe Bisbaum. In his offices were in uh, downtown Albany, uh, which is about 25 miles south of Salem. And I went down there to see him after I moved out here in August of 1990.
4: So this was way before Gable's trial?
8: Yeah, this was before Gable's trial.
4: That lawyer and his wife took notes of that meeting, which we have. And what did he share with you?
8: Joe said that uh, Jody was really, really wired and just scared and shaking and babbling off about her boyfriend murdering a guy. And that she was there, and that she might be an accomplice, and doesn't want to go down for life for murder and blah 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 and all that. And that's when she mentioned Mike Frankie.
4: And who was the boyfriend she believed committed the murder? Jody said that Tim had killed Mike Frankie. Did you ever find out who that Tim was?
8: Tim was Rooster, uh, according to Jody.
4: Tim Natividad.
8: Tim Natividad.
4: Yes, that Tim Rooster Natividad. The same drug-dealing natividad Carrie Rothschild wiped blood off of after a murder. The same natividad Liz Godlove believes was the man in the pinstripe suit. The same natividad Conrad Nick Garcia says approached him to kill Michael Frankie at the request of the then-assistant AG, Scott McAllister. That, Tim Natividad.
8: And I gave a copy of those notes to Gable's defense team, and I gave it copy to Sarah Moore, who was the prosecuting attorney for Frank Gable. And I told Sarah, this kind of throws a wrench in your case against Gable.
4: So how did the courtroom and jury react to that incredible bombshell about Tim Natividad? They didn't. Did that ever come up in the trial?
8: No, never. Any information regarding Tim Natividad was ruled irrelevant
6: and inadmissible.
4: That's right. For some reason, Judge Gregory West didn't permit mention of Tim Natividad during the trial.
6: Jody wasn't even allowed to mention Natividad's name. She was specifically forbidden by West to mention Natividad's name. Uh, there was uh, a lot of discussion out of hearing of the jury about that, and she was forbidden to mention Natividad.
4: And that's not all.
6: And of course, uh, Krause was never brought up.
4: That's the Johnny Krause who confessed knowledge of the murder and was granted immunity to recant. Those omissions would layer with other issues.
6: The defense's failure to point out the contradictions between Hunsaker and Shorty, failure to present an alibi, a Gable was at home that night, and as, as would later be proved. But they didn't do that.
4: And after Jody Swearingen testified that she'd been coerced into testifying against Gable, after she recanted her story that placed Gable at the dome building that night as a lie, after she was ripped apart by the prosecution, who used the story they'd coerced and shaped with nearly two dozen polygraph tests against her, Gable's defense made a shocking decision.
7: After Sarah Moore came back and destroyed everything, but it was all stuff that we could reassemble when we called her back on the stand.
4: But for some reason, Bob Abel refused to put Jody back on the stand.
7: He just didn't want to mess with it. I'm- don't want to put her back up. She's too dangerous. Even though we, we could have resolved a lot of the things that Sarah did and, you know, kind of reconstructed her testimony, which was very important, Bob just wouldn't do it. And from that point on, I didn't have the feeling that he had to through the case, but he just gave up on it.
4: Here's newspaper reporter Steve Jackson's take on Jody.
11: So, I think that she was being truthful when she uh, retracted her statement to the police, it didn't make sense. And there are some parts that I felt the defense attorney should have been able to, to turn on on that with, uh, you know, the timing. I mean, you know, she put, supposedly left the scene and, went and made a phone call and then came back to the scene and witnessed all this. You know, she would have had to have been a world-class sprinter um, to actually fit into that timeline. But the defense never brought it up.
4: Phil Stamford thinks the defense may have been more than just incompetent
6: abel he did such a bad job that the best thing you can say about him is that he was incompetent whether it was more than that is an interesting question Uh, at at the time he was given this case his business was going down the tubes he was desperate for a job and he, he was handed one that was very very lucrative here so it's worthwhile considering the possibility that the case was thrown as far as i'm concerned
4: But as shocking as the defense's seeming inability to challenge and properly cross-examine witnesses like Hunsaker, Hardin, and Swearingen, it's the fact that Gable, who vehemently wanted to testify, was never given the chance. That still haunts the lead defense investigator, Tom McCallum.
7: I kind of controlled all the witnesses. I had witnesses all set up, and at the end of our case, Dr. Spitz was one of our last witnesses. And we had several other witnesses coming after that but we were going to have Frank testify. And I had to give Dr. Spitz a ride back at lunch break to the Portland airport.
4: And it was while McCallum was driving that witness back to the airport that the defense abruptly rested, shocking many, including McCallum.
7: On my way back, I had a call from Phil saying, what the hell's going on? And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you guys rested. And I said, what are you talking about? We can't have rested, and Frank's going to testify, and we got all kinds of witnesses set up this afternoon, and I guess Bob took advantage of the fact that I was gone and rested the case. That surprised me, and that we had things that needed to be addressed and said, and witnesses that had things to say, and I guess I lost a little bit of hope with that.
4: Reporter Steve Jackson thought when the defense rested, it was clear Gable wasn't actually being defended.
11: It didn't happen. In fact, the defense folded and closed its case in so short a time as it was just pretty shocking. To tell you the truth is that, you know, I've seen defenses before where they don't even present anything. But usually that's because the state case is so ridiculous that, you know, they just go to closing and they say something like that. But in this case, I thought there was an opportunity to at least cast reasonable doubt on the state case as presented. And, uh, and gone from there, but uh, there was just little to nothing. Um, There's a couple expert witnesses, um, some witnesses recanting, um, but it was just, it was kind of over and done, and you're sitting there wondering, well, what about the timeline? What about the things that don't make sense? What about Michael Frankie and, uh, you know, the situation around his house? And uh, what about some of these other things?
4: Things like the spent riot gun shells littering Frankie's back deck, or the pistol found under his pillow, or that he was teaching his wife to shoot. But even with all the defense's missteps, with resting prematurely, without letting Gable take the stand, there was still no physical evidence linking Frank Gable to the crime. Here's local reporter Eric Mason.
10: There was no one there to provide the glue to put it all together to basically say to the jury, there's not a hair, there's not a fiber, there's not a drop of blood that ties Frank Gable to any of this. It just wasn't there. Those of us who understood the story thought to ourselves, man, there's just not enough evidence here except for some inmates some convicted and professional liars to come forward and tell these stories about Frank Gable and about his admissions. There's nothing there that holds this together and the prosecution hasn't met its burden of proof in the eyes of everyone who had been there to study the
4: case. And Mason wasn't alone in believing the state hadn't proved guilt beyond a reasonable doubt.
10: I think 99% of the reporters knew that, that he was not the right guy. As the jury is deliberating, we did take a straw poll as reporters, and all of us but one believed that Frank Gable should be acquitted of the crime. There was not enough there to convict him of stabbing Michael Frankie. It was just a lack of forensic evidence of any kind that tied him to the scene.
4: Even the defense's lead investigator, Tom McCallum, thought Gable would be acquitted.
10: In
7: fact, uh, when the verdict came back, I went down and Frank didn't want to come up. He was scared and didn't want to come up and uh, hear the verdict. And I went down and talked to him for about half an hour. And I said, God, uh, Frank, there's no way they can find you guilty. And that's the way I felt.
4: But McCallum would be proved wrong. After less than 24 hours of deliberation, the jury unanimously found Gable guilty of murdering Michael Frankie. He was found guilty of six counts of aggravated murder and one count of murder. He was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Here's Kevin.
8: When they announced guilty, i have never heard a quieter quiet in my life. Talking with the reporters, there was a gal at the ATU that was there, and she looked at me and she said, my God, that could have been you or me sitting in Frank Abel's chair.
4: She was shocked that he was found guilty. Well, everybody was. Here's Eric Mason. When the verdict was announced, what went through your head?
10: Complete shock that 12 people could arrive at that conclusion based on two deputy district attorneys who made that case. And basically, these convicts who came and told these stories... And we all just kind of shook our heads and went, okay, well, I guess we just go out and re- report what just happened.
4: Phil still grapples with that day.
6: You know, what, what gets me is that they knew what they'd done. They they knew that they'd absolutely made up a case against a man who wasn't even there. They, they were smart enough to know that. They're sm- they were smart enough to know how they did it. All these lie detector tests, all this manufactured testimony, And then not only do they get a conviction on the basis of this phony evidence, they ask for the death penalty.
4: And they came close to getting it.
6: Oh yeah, they did. Uh, I think it was 10 to two.
4: Why do you think they would have wanted him dead? Do you think it's safe to assume that it's because the case would have died with Gable?
6: Oh, it would have, yeah. I think you're right. They're willing to kill him. As far as I'm concerned, that's about as evil as you can get.
4: On the next murder in Oregon, another uncovered bombshell that was kept from Gable's trial.
8: She overheard the conversation. This guy says it's supposed to look like a suicide.
4: She now comes forward.
8: It was a burden off
4: of his back. That Michael was dead. Yes. Connecting a by-now-familiar name to the murder of Michael Frankie. And he relishes in the misery that he brings to people. He just absolutely relishes in it.
0: Murder in Oregon is hosted by Lauren Bright Pacheco and Phil Stanford. Executive producers are Noel Brown, Lauren Bright Pacheco, and Phil Stanford. Supervising producer and lead editor is Taylor Shacoin Sound design by Tristan McNeil. Story editing by Matt Riddle. Written by Phil Stanford, Matt Riddle, and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players and mixed by Taylor Shacoin With music supervision by Noel Brown. Additional music by Tristan McNeil. Archival elements courtesy of KGW in Portland, Oregon. The station behind the podcast, Urge to Kill. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio.